0: So I've titled the first sermon uh, in the Joel series, Where to Call When Gladness Dries Up. Where to call when gladness dries up. If we went around the room, I bet each of you would have a story of seasons where gladness seemed to dry up in your home, in your marriage, uh, with friends in the face of loss and confusion. The joy, the laughter, the, the celebration that you wished would last uh, forever gets interrupted by seasons that strip you bare, and everything pleasant seems gone. And no human really has the resources or the power to restore you in any lasting way, at least. So where do you call? That's a question Israel faced when their gladness dried up. In Joel, we stumble upon a, God's covenant people, and they are reeling from a locust plague that reduced the promised land to a wasteland. Hordes of locusts devour everything in their path, and the people sink into a very desperate time. These were God's covenant people. I mean, he brought them into the land. He sustained the land. He had provided them with its bounty for years, land flowing with milk and honey. More than that, he was the Almighty One. Couldn't he protect it from locusts? What did this mean for their relationship with the Lord? And was he still there? Or had he abandoned them? Well, in their grief, the Lord does not remain silent. He sends them a prophet. And Joel comes both to sound an alarm and to summon them to prayer. He comes to sound an alarm about the judgment that's coming and to summon them to prayer ...and repentance. We don't know much about Joel. I mean, we know his daddy's name was Pethuel. But unlike the other prophets, he doesn't tell us... ...like, when his ministry occurs. You, you don't get anything that says, you know... He, he was, he, ...this word came to him in the days of Uzziah... ...king of Judah, or, or in the days of another king. But we do know this, the word he received is that of the Lord... And that word comes to a people with whom God had made a covenant at Mount Sinai. So, within the Bible's storyline, we're witnessing the Lord deal with his people under the terms of that covenant. Meaning, the locust plague is not random, it's relational. God has dealings with Israel. And his goal is to drive Israel back into his arms. That's also his goal when you read Joel. You're included in Joel's audience. Joel tells his readers in verse 3, Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. And you are part of the future Generations. You need to hear of God's dealings with Israel. For in them, God sounds the alarm about judgment. In them, God summons you to return to Him and call upon His name when gladness dries up. And in them, God wants you to know the restoration of His powerful presence. So let's read chapter 1, and then we'll look at Joel's message more carefully. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days, or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locusts has eaten. And what the hopping locusts left, the destroying locusts has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine. Because of the sweet wine, for it's cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day! For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness." So chapter 1 ends with a land famished by drought, but the drought comes on the heels of this incredible locust plague. I mean, some of you have seen Planet Earth, and you know the the episode where these great swarms of locusts sweep across the countryside, billions cloud the skies and devour all vegetation in their path. History even recounts these, these great locust swarms sweeping across Africa and the Middle East. Even last November, the Guardian published an article on how locusts have destroyed over half a million acres of farmland in Ethiopia. In Joel's day, Israel experienced a similar plight. Verse 4 piles up these various names for the locusts in their day as a a poetic way to, to show how merciless they, they were what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, its joying locust has eaten. So there's just not a green plant left. They stripped everything bare, even the bark from the trees. I mean, these are ferocious. Verse 6 compares them to lions. They're, lions, you know, tear... They are prey to pieces. The locusts do the same with the trees. So there's no more shade to enjoy. No more fruit. You may wonder why he calls them a nation in verse 6. For a nation has come up against my land. Now this has led some to suggest that the locusts and Joel are only a metaphor. That is, human armies are the actual threat but they're being described as locusts. And I think there's actually good precedent for that. For example, in Judges chapter 6, verse 5, God describes Midian's army like this. They would encamp against Israel and devour the produce of the land. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts, in number, both they and their camels couldn't be counted. Also, in the curses of Deuteronomy 28, I saw this one just uh, just yesterday, where uh, it's, it's, again, describing a foreign nation, and it says, uh, It shall eat the... They will swoop down, and it shall... The nation shall... Eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds, or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. So I can see why some might take it that way. I can even see how a human army might splinter fig trees and cut down forests in order to make their weapons and siege works. I mean, there are Sauromans in the world who burn Fangorn Forest to win. However, when we encounter the reversal of this plague in chapter 2, verse 25, God clearly identifies his, His army as the locusts themselves. So at least in chapter 1, I think Joel describes an actual locust horde using the metaphor of a human army. At the same time, Joel is likely saying two things at once. You can do that with poetry. They've seen real armies consume their surroundings like locusts. Moreover, the locust army is a precursor to a human army he will talk about in Joel 2. And, I want to jump way ahead, the locust army, which is a precursor to the human army, is a precursor to the demonic army we see in Revelation 9. So, we're dealing with real locusts, wreaking havoc, but his message is signaling more than that to the readers. His message applies to a number of enemy types, and they are to view them in relation to God's dealings with them throughout history. But here's something else. If you were an Israelite, and you grew up cutting your teeth on the Exodus story, What would enter your mind in the face of a locust plague? God fought against Egypt with locusts. God is now fighting against us. And you'd be right to think that way in light of the covenant God made with them at Sinai. God told them this would happen. Deuteronomy 28, verse 38 includes locusts among the covenant curses. The land would be plentiful if they obeyed, but if they strayed, God would destroy the land with locusts and with drought. And with armies, and we get all three in Joel. God is being faithful to his word of judgment. God has sent the locusts. Verse 15 even relates the locust plague to the day of the Lord. He says, Alas for the day. That word, alas, really isn't a word so much as it's the sound you make when somebody kicks you in the gut. (laughs) It's that terrible. It's this gut-wrenching dread of what's coming. The day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. This locust plague is a sign for the people. It signals that God's final assize... Is coming. It's just over the horizon. The plague is a foretaste of that greater day when God exposes that all human strength is but nothing before Him. All human boasting is vain. God will raise His kingdom and all rebel kingdoms will fall. It doesn't matter if you're Egypt or if you're Israel. God will do whatever He has to to prove that He and He alone is king. Yeah, we'll spend more time on the day of the Lord next week, because he expands on it in chapter 2. But for now, let's, uh, let's move to the results. The results of the locust plague. So what did it look like when God brought them to the end of themselves? Well, let's begin with the most obvious. Life's necessities were stripped away. We read of the trees being stripped and thrown down in verse 7. Also, uh, look at verse 10. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up and the oil languishes. Grain, wine, and oil. You find these lumped together quite often in, in Scripture. In fact, Ben shared a, 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 a verse from Psalm 104 the other day uh, in Sunday school... Uh, that said, uh, the Lord brings forth from the earth food, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. But now all three of these are, are missing. Even the farmers are ashamed, right? They till the, they till the soil and, and the city. They're waiting for them to bring in the wagons. And they're empty. They come with nothing. The wheat, the barley, the harvest of the field has perished. Verse 11 says, verse 12, pomegranate, palm, apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. In verse 17, the storehouses are desolate. The reserves are are gone, the granaries are torn down, even the animals feel it in verse 18. The the sheep have no pastures to eat. Creation itself groans. But that's not all. There's more to these losses than what first meets the eye. Kingdom hopes were also shriveling up. Remember, the promised land is Supposed to be like a picture of, of God's kingdom on earth. Okay? It's supposed to be the new Eden, but bigger. Associated with that kingdom on earth were numerous promises given to Israel. Consider the promise that God would make Abraham into a great nation and his descendants would multiply such that you you couldn't count them, right? But here in verse 6, it's not Abraham's nation that is great and beyond number. The locust's nation is great. Same word in Hebrew, is great and beyond number. It says uh, powerful here in the ESV. Or take the vine and the fig tree in verse 7 and 12. Yeah, we have some dead plants on the ground or or eaten, but it's more than that. Back in Genesis 49, verse 10, God promised a lion-like son from the tribe of Judah, and he would establish his reign, and during his reign, the earth would be so prosperous that dad can tell son, hey, go get the donkey and tie him up to the grapevine. Got too many grapes growing here. Just give them to the donkey. And then you move forward a little bit in the story to the reign of Solomon, who is the son from Judah's line. And 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25 says, Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. So when the vine and the fig tree prospered, it pointed to God's abundant kingdom on, on earth, his, his rule through a son in Judah's line. And the later prophets... Uh, Like Zechariah 3.10, for example, use this same imagery of vine and fig tree to hold out hope for the future abundant kingdom. But for now, the vines are stripped and the fig tree is dead. Also, the temple offerings get cut off. If you know anything about Israel's history... The temple represented God's presence among His people. It replaced the tabernacle once they settled in Jerusalem. God wasn't limited to that temple, but He chose to manifest His glory there. And under the law, the priests, right? They, would, they, would, they, they served in the temple and brought regular sacrifices and offerings. Grain offerings and drink offerings would attend the sacrifices. And some of the, so some of these grain offerings and drink offerings are mixed with the offerings they're bringing for the atonement of sin. And others came at appointed feasts throughout the year as a way to celebrate God's provision. In other words, these were the happy signs of their relationship with God. These were the moments to give thanks and to rejoice in His merciful presence. But without the grain, and without the wine, and without the oil, there were no offerings left to bring. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord, verse 9 says. And the Hebrew implies that God Himself cut them off. The offerings were made to be cut off. And then again in verse 13, Go in and pass the sackcloth... Uh, Pass the night in sackcloth, O oh, ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. It's as if, you're st- if, if you, when you read chapter one, like we did it a little bit ago, it's as if Joel's eyes are panning back and forth from the agricultural disaster to what it implies for the relational disaster with the Lord. And he goes back and forth more than once. It's more than just a random natural disaster. The signs of joy and gladness in God's presence are cut off. God doesn't tolerate people going through the motions of the covenant without knowing the God of the covenant. So he takes them away. It's no surprise then that twice he alludes to the people's gladness drying up. I mean, when your necessities are gone, you've got no kingdom hope, and the, and the signs of God's presence are taken away. Gladness dries up. Verse 12, And gladness dries up from the children of man. Verse 16, Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? You see, God made us to find joy serving in His presence. What does the psalmist say? A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So yes... The lack of basic necessities here leads to great sorrow. But more central to the loss of joy is losing the signs of God's covenant presence. That's the ultimate tragedy in Joel. And Joel is trying to help Israel see that. The greatest tragedy of sin is that it separates us from joy in God's presence in His kingdom. So, how does Joel, or better God, teach them to respond? What are they supposed to do when gladness dries up? Remember, the locust plague is not random. It's relational. God means for the plague to drive them back to Himself, to longing for His presence. And so He tells them first, Wake up. Wake up. Verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Drunkards are those enslaved to drink. They don't look to the Lord in sorrow, but pretend to make it disappear with another drink and another drink. But then they're simply the drinkers of wine. They're not enslaved to wine, but simply enjoy it. Go about their day without a care. And yet both groups find themselves on equal footing before the Lord. The drunk laying in the street and the guy coming out of the fancy building looking at him, despising him. And the Lord is calling them both to account. Both, if not careful, will miss the meaning of the locust plague. Both, if not careful, will be putting their hope in the wrong things. Both of them need to wake up. The day of the Lord is coming and the plague is but a foretaste of His all-consuming might in judgment. God will not tolerate covenant breakers of any sort. Whether lazy drunks or well-to-do wine connoisseurs. Both and indeed everyone in between... must give their lives to the Lord. They must wake up and make the Lord their trust and joy in life. They must wake up before it's too late. They're also called to lament. Verse 8. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. And the image is that of a young woman... She's engaged to be married, but she doesn't get to celebrate her marriage because her husband has died before the day had come. Again, in verse 13, he tells them to put on sackcloth and lament. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Without the offering, the only thing the priest could bring were sackcloth and tears. I once heard someone describe a lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. The people must mourn over their sin and its horrific consequences. The Lord has lifted His blessings and has stripped uh, stripped the the joy of His presence right from them. The only proper response in these situations is sorrow that leads to repentance and trust in the Lord. And he also tells them to cry out. Cry out to the Lord. Verse 14, Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And then, Joel himself... I mean, Joel gives an example by crying out himself. It's Joel who's saying, Alas! Right? The day of the Lord has come. It's near. And then after reflecting further on their plight, he comes again in verse 19, To you, O Lord, I call. So where do you call when gladness dries up? Well, you call on the Lord. The Lord is Joel's only hope. The Lord controls the locust plague. He's the one who sent it. Chapter 2, verse 25 says, if He controls it, and if He rules over it, then He alone can do something about it. There's no other helper besides the Lord. And so, Joel calls to Him, while inviting the rest of Israel to follow in His steps. But keep this in mind. It is not merely Joel who's calling them to call upon the Lord. It is God Himself through Joel. Meaning the relationship still has hope. Even in the face of judgment God is extending mercy ascending sending the prophet. He doesn't remain silent but He speaks In mercy, God reaches down. In mercy, God waits for their cry. His response doesn't come until chapter 2, verse 18. But when it comes, it is an outpouring of mercy. Restoration. He removes their shame. He renews their hope. He gives them the gift of His presence and protection from enemies and all kinds of future promises and all in response to their cry. So He hears them. We'll have to wait a few more weeks to cover that outpouring of mercy. For now, I want to stop and reflect on what we should take away from chapter 1. Application isn't as simple as making these one-to-one correlations, right? Such that every natural disaster turns into a time for us to say, Well, God is punishing that people over there for their sins. Right? We must be careful not to read, our, read ourselves or just any modern nation into the text too quickly. Joel also says to gather everyone to the house of the Lord. But what does that mean? If according to John 2, Jesus has replaced the temple. Don't get me wrong, God's word through Joel certainly addresses us. We are that later generation, but it's a matter of how. How does it address us? In Christ, we now belong to God's covenant people. But as we saw in Hebrews, a new and better covenant has come in Christ. So in that light, here are a few things we we can take away from chapter 1. We can look at Joel and him addressing Israel under the Old Covenant. We can look at this and we can recognize the horrific effects of sin. We can recognize the horrific effects of sin. And by sin I mean lawlessness, defying God, reordering existence around yourself so that you become your own creator and your own sustainer and your own healer and your own provider. To use the words of David Wells there. Sin has horrific effects. It lulls people to sleep such that they no longer remain alert to the things of God. That's he to tell, why he has to tell them to wake up in verse 5. Notice how sin also robs the community of joy and gladness. Sin doesn't affect just the individual, it affects the community. It invites consequences on the entire community. Everyone in Israel is hurting, including the faithful like Joel. Sin also robs us of joy in God's presence. Sin even brings brokenness upon the land itself. It upends the way the created order ought to be. See in verse 10 how the ground itself mourns. How the beasts groan in verse 18. That's a far cry from Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? It's a far cry from the garden. And Israel's history is but a small picture of the world's history. Romans 8 teaches us that God broke the world in response to Adam's sin. And since then, it says the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Over one sin! Sin causes the world to groan. So we need to look at it, square in the face, and we need to see sin clearly for what it is, an offense against the Almighty God, and we need to see how, how horrible the consequences are, and we need to let the horrors of those consequences be all the more reason we put it to death in our lives. So don't toy with the joy-robbing, creation-breaking, false promises of sin. It destroys everything and everyone and it invites God's judgment. Second, we must wake up to God's coming judgment. Wake up to God's coming judgment. The book of Joel teaches us that God judges covenant breakers. Whether Egypt or Israel, whether drunkard or priest, whether young or old, God's judgment is no respecter of persons. He sees us all completely, we're all on equal footing before the Lord. He knows our sins, He will not tolerate us treating His word lightly. Even when His own people took His word lightly, we see here He acted in judgment. And this smaller, localized judgment in the land is but a shadow of the greater judgment that is to come. The day of the Lord draws near. So you have like, the day, day of the Lord. Jesus Christ returns to judge the earth. And you've got all these other days of the Lord throughout history that are saying, you better wake up, you better wake up, you better wake up, Jesus is coming. Even the cross of Christ testifies that God doesn't tolerate covenant breakers. He must punish sin. Judgment day is coming, and unless you hide yourself in Jesus, all of the curses of the covenant will come upon you. Any Gentile reading this prophet, and that's probably most of us here, except maybe one, Gentiles ought to read this prophet and they should recognize, they should see God's dealings with Israel. They should see, wait a second, God judges covenant breakers. I'm a covenant breaker too, in Adam. I need a Savior. I too must repent and cry to the Lord for mercy. Third, when you cry for mercy, come to the Lord Jesus Christ, God's true sacrifice and temple. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, God's true sacrifice and temple. The people are desperate in chapter 1. The signs of God's presence have been cut off. Joy and gladness are cut off from the house of the Lord. The people have nothing to bring if there's no sacrifice to bring, if we can't do what the law requires us to do because my sin has so jacked things up, how else can we come before the Lord? How's He going to atone for our sins? How's He going to hear us and meet with us again? Well, He atones for our sins through the blood of Jesus. Here the people experience the curse of the law. Deuteronomy 28 is all over this chapter. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, Galatians tells us. But Galatians also goes on to say, In Jesus, God removes the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. That's how God atones for our sins. That's how God deals with the curse we deserved. So when we have nothing to bring, God provides the offering. And how will God meet with us? Well, the answer is the same, in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, "...destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." And John then goes on to say that Jesus was speaking about the temple of His body. Jesus is the new meeting place, in other words. We don't go to gather to a place in Jerusalem... We don't go to a place in the Middle East called the House of the Lord. We don't go to a specific building to enjoy God's presence. We gather to Jesus. That's where we meet with God. That's where we enjoy God's presence in union with Christ. The church, meaning you people, the church, is God's solemn assembly who have gathered to the true meeting place in Jesus where God now chooses to dwell. You are the temple, right? This is the New Testament. So gather to Jesus to have all your joy restored and gladness secured in all the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus. Gather to Him. Fourth, when it's all you have, bring your sackcloth and tears. When it's all you have, Bring your sackcloth and tears. The pattern is consistent through Scripture that God sometimes strips His own people bare to bring them to the end of themselves. Sometimes He will cause events that jerk the rug right out from under them. Sometimes he makes us feel the consequences of sin very pointedly and maybe even for a long time. I mean, we're talking years worth of recovery in Joel chapter 1. It's not like, dang, some locusts ate our crops, let's go to HEB. H-E-B's in shambles and there ain't no trucks bringing the food into town. You gotta wait a year for the next harvest. And maybe three years before everybody's eating. Maybe, like the wine drinkers, you experience regret for not giving the Lord more attention in your life. Maybe, like the priests, you mourn over how distant the Lord's presence feels. Maybe like the farmers, you experience great shame. Maybe like the children of man, gladness feels like a distant memory. Maybe, like Joel, you're among the faithful, but you're looking out over a land that sin has destroyed. And you have nothing left but sackcloth and tears. God wants them. Put them on and lament. Cry out to me, the Lord says. So He wants you is the point. So come to Him when that's all you have left. Come to the Lord and find rest for your weary soul. Imitate Joel when he says, To you, O Lord, I call. God welcomes you. God sees you in your need. Even when it's all gone, He's driving you back to Himself, into His arms. And there, in His arms, you will find restoration and joy and comfort. Also, no shame, because in Christ, God replaces your shame with glory. And then lastly, devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. Think of how awful things are for Israel in the face of the locust plague. I mean, there's devastation devastation all around. I mean, the land is destroyed. You've got years' worth of restoration needed, changing the course of an entire nation, moving folks to respond to the Lord's Word rightly. He just has these impossible odds stacked against them. And God tells them to pray. Prayer is God's chosen means to accomplish His purposes, to bring about change. Restoration will not come apart from people praying. Joy in God's presence will not come apart from the cries of God's people. Many of us want to see God move in powerful ways, In the church, I mean our own church and the church worldwide. But have we forgotten to devote ourselves to prayer? What will it take for God to wake up the church to our dire need to pray? Will it have to be total devastation before people get off social media and get on their knees? Together? Imagine that. Praying together for God to show up. God's presence to be restoring our joy. In Christ, we have the greatest privilege in the world. Access to the greatest treasure in the world. The most powerful, strong, wise, rich, sovereign ruler of the world lends us His ear and He asks us to cry to Him. How insane it would be to refuse Him. So let our study in Joel renew your passion to pray and to call out to the Lord for help and for strength and for salvation. And may the Lord be pleased to renew our gladness where it has dried up. Let's pray together.